1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. That's not verse 12. There we go. Hallelujah. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. You're going to notice that Paul specifically mentions this phrase, all things are lawful for me, and he mentions it twice here, and it's in quotes in the English Standard Version. I'm not sure if it is in, in other translations, but what, what Paul is dealing with is a, what was probably a commonly used phrase by the Corinthian church. And it appears this phrase was being used to, to basically let the Corinthian church do whatever that they wanted to do. When they were get caught doing something they shouldn't have been doing, that was a saying, oh, all things are lawful for me. Paul said, all things are lawful for me. But look what you're doing. You're, you're with, your, with your father's wife. Oh, but all things are lawful for me. So Paul's dealing with this, this excuse that had, been, that had been wrapped up by the, the church. And the reality is, is Paul probably taught on this, right? He explained to them that all things were lawful, and they misunderstood, and they wrapped it around something else. And we actually see similar stuff said like this today. Because sometimes we read this and we're like, Man, that, those, those, people, those Corinthians were crazy. We would never do anything like that. We're, you know, we, we're, we're much more mature than those folks. But we see it today. Because you ever seen somebody said stuff like, oh, God will forgive you. That's what we say today when we want to justify, oh, God's going to forgive me. It's going to be okay. But what about when you do hold somebody accountable? You hold another Christian accountable and don't judge me. What do you mean don't judge you? Well, we just learned the scripture says that we are to an extent to judge one another. Now, we have to be careful about this, guys. This isn't a license for us to be. Don't turn it into something that it's not supposed to be because it can quickly just turn into to gossip. If you, if you need to speak into somebody's life, you need to have permission to speak into their life. It wouldn't make any sense for me to go over to the Springs Church and begin to, to correct or rebuke one of his disciples because I don't have any right to speak in their life. I haven't been given that right. Now, if you have somebody that you have a relationship with, and you're, then they've given you a right with a relationship to, to speak into the life. And remember, we're not ever condemning them. It should always be reminding them who they are in Christ. Why are you doing this? You're so much more. God has forgiven. He's freed you from this. And we have to make sure that we're doing that the right. And I hope I'm, uh, I'm making some sense when I'm talking about it. This isn't today's, and yes, last week's message is not about us pointing fingers at people and telling people how they're, they're messing up. Amen? But, yeah, people say stuff like that. You can't judge me. Well, there's some things that we are to hold one another accountable for. And the reality is, is Paul probably used this phrase when he was teaching to the Corinthian church. That's why they got a hold of it. They just misunderstood it. They misunderstood the intent behind it. And this isn't the only time this has happened in the, in the, in the Bible either, because the, the Jews did a similar thing when they were following the letter of the law instead of the, the spirit of the law. That's basically what happened here. Paul was trying to explain to them a principle, and they took it so literal that it just messed up their lives. They figured they could get away with anything. They had forgotten that they weren't just forgiven so that, that they would be right with God and they could do whatever they want. They were forgiven so they could be set free from the stuff that was holding them back. We're not free to sin. We're free from sin. Amen? And Paul never meant 
to disregard basic Christian ethics and morality. And the truth is, is that when, when God sent his son, he didn't wipe away the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to wipe it away. And what that means by fulfilling the law is that he paid the penalty for those sins. Because the penalty of sin, he fulfilled that for us. But he freed us from the power of sin so we could live the way God intended us to live. God didn't write the law on all those things to live holy. and all. He didn't, those things weren't put in place because God was a stickler and he just wiped them away. That's who God wants us to be. Paul never meant to disregard who God was and how he expected us to live our lives. But that's the thing about Jesus. He made it so we could live our lives in that way. They were basically saying, if it's not expressly forbidden in Scripture, we can do whatever we want. But like I said, we are free from sin, not free to sin. And then he answers this phrase twice just to clarify no, this is actually how it works. He says, all things are lawful for me, and, but not all things are helpful. The New American Standard Bible translates that as not all things are profitable. And the NIV says, all thing, not all things are beneficial to me. There are some things that you can do that may not, and, and this is even more so, they may not even technically be a sin, but that you still shouldn't do them. They're still not good for you. While they're not specifically forbidden in scriptures, these actions can still, and their results are not beneficial to them or the church. They can actually be hurtful in many ways. The reality is is that believers should be using their Christian freedom to share the gospel and to have love for one another. Instead of looking for ways to gratify ourselves, we're actually, you wouldn't even have any of this mess if we just actually realized that we're supposed to hold everybody else as being worth more than ourselves. If we viewed everybody else as worth more than ourselves, like the scripture calls us to do, then we wouldn't even have most of these issues that we have. One of the things that I was writing about this and reading about this that came to my mind as I was looking at this is I think one thing that believers need to be real careful with is piercings and tattoos. I don't personally, this is a personal opinion, really think that the tattoos and piercings in and of themselves are a sin. This is a, a, a personal opinion. Um, the reason why they were in the law was that so we could be kept separated. But the question is, when we do things like that, what are we saying to the rest of the world? The law was given that we weren't supposed to have piercing and tattoos, so we'd be set apart from everybody else instead of trying to look like the rest of the world. When we're going around and getting piercings and tattoos, who are we trying to fit in with? Who are we trying to impress? And what impressions are we actually making? You know, if you're you're a person that has, you know, big old, uh, those ear tattoos in your ears and you got a nose ring and, you, and your, your face, how, that might limit your ability to minister to somebody else. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to fit in? And before everybody gets in, I have a tattoo. I got it when I was a young Christian. It looks like it was given to me in prison, but I never went to prison. I just didn't find a very good tattoo artist. And... Uh, if you get saved with tattoos, who cares? You know, and the truth is, if you get a tattoo, no one's going to kick you out of the church. No one's going to condemn you. But I would encourage you to think, because all things may be lawful for you, but they might not be profitable to you or to the church or anybody else. Amen? And then he goes on to say, 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And this is one, this is, as I was reading this, is that some actions may not be sinful in and of themselves, but they're not appropriate because they can control, they can take control in a believer's lives. And we shouldn't be getting involved in stuff like this because we should never do anything that takes away our ability to make decisions in our own life. And this is another one that, that comes to mind when I'm thinking about this is, is, is smoking and drinking and doing all those things in your life that have an addictive quality in your life. And everyone's going to have to make their own decision on whether they think that that's a sinner or not. What, what God's... Some things are going to affect you differently. You know, there's always the argument, whether they drank in the Old Testament, is it a sin, is it not a sin? You're going to have to make that decision for yourself, but I do know that if you get addicted to any of those things, then you're in sin. If any of those things have a control over your life, then you're in sin. If you can't make it through halfway through the church service without thinking about going and have a cigarette, then you got a problem. And it doesn't just have to do with those kind of things. You know, some of us are thinking, well, whew, I don't smoke or drink, I'm good to go there. But it can be anything. It can be TV. Are we so busy watching TV that we don't have time for God? It can be games. It can be sports. It can be music. It can be anything that begins to step in and has so much hold over your life that it enslaves you to those things. We're not, you know, this, all things are lawful. But they're, we don't want to be enslaved. We don't want, they're not profitable for our life. We have to make decisions about the things that we're doing. And one of the things that we have to think about in all of those things is how does it alter our perception to those around us? You know, if, you're, if your primary ministry is to go into the inner cities and deal with gang members, probably not a big deal if you get tattoos and piercings. It might actually, you know, you might, it might actually help you have a way in because they can see that you relate to them. But we do have to think about those things. How would it affect our ministry? How would it affect our lives? How will it affect the ability for somebody else to receive the gospel from us? That's important. It may be lawful, but it's not profitable. Was it worth it if one person goes to hell because you had the opportunity to share with them, but they didn't want to hear what you had to say because of some of the things that you did in your life? That would be tough. Freedom in Christ is one of the most amazing things that we enjoy as Christians. I want you to, that's an amazing thing. That we are free, that there's, we don't have to worry about what food can we eat, what food can't we eat, and all those things. We're free. That's amazing. And the freedom to enjoy all things, that has come from God. But we have to be careful how we use our Christian liberty. We have to be careful that we're not abusing this freedom. And just because we're no longer under the law doesn't mean that we should not live our lives as people who are called and holy. We're still supposed to live in holiness. We're still supposed to live without sin. And you guys have heard me preach it before. I believe that in Christ we can live without sin. It's tough might be unlikely, but it is. If we would just keep our eyes on Him instead of on everything else, we could live sin-free lives. 
That's not true, Pastor Wayne. How could we live a, a sin-free life? Jesus did it. And Jesus was a man just like us. You may not be Jesus, but Jesus was a man just like us. He was tempted in every way just like us. And he lived without sin. It is possible for a man to live without sin. But Jesus was God. Yes, he was, but he laid aside his deity when he came to earth. He lived just like you and I. And he lived without sin, which means we can. And that's how we're called to live. That's why the scripture says that he is the, the, the measuring stick. He's the standard of what we're supposed to live. The measure and the standard that is Jesus Christ. And we have to be very careful in our walk that we don't excuse sin like bitterness, gossip, unforgiveness, lust, withholding money from God's or any of those things. And we don't excuse those things under the pretense of freedom. Amen? We must ensure that these things must not grow into bad habits that control us in our life. 1 Corinthians 6.13, he continues to go on. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So food for the stomach and stomach for the food, that was another slogan by which the Corinthian churches, they were justifying themselves. They reasoned that food was both pleasurable and necessary. And when their stomachs signaled hunger, what do you do when you're hungry? You go and eat. And it was taken to satisfy them. So they began to argue that, well, sex is pleasurable and, and it's, nece- and it's, it's uh, necessary as well. So when their bodies signaled a sexual desire, they went ahead and, and figured they needed to be satisfied. And they began to use these excuses to justify what they were doing. They treated sex as an appetite and not as a gift to be cherished. It was given by God. You know, one of the things, the reality is that there, sex is not bad. It was given as a gift by God. It was given to us before the fall. The scripture says, before the fall, it says, be fruitful and multiply. Well, we all know how that works. Sex was something that was supposed to be enjoyed by married couples. And when it's done in the context of what God has given it to be, it's a beautiful thing. But outside of the context of what God has given it, it is dangerous and it is destructive to our very lives. And sensuality is to sex what gluttony is to eating. Both are sinful and both brings disastrous consequences to a person's life. And just because we have normal desires that were given to us by God, it doesn't mean that we must satisfy them in any way that we choose. And he goes on to say, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The Greek word for, for body that's being used there is not just referring to, to your, your meat tent. It's not just referring to your flesh, but it's referring to you as a whole. The, the, the word for body refers to the whole being and the, the personality, not just worldly flesh. And he says these bodies, us, all of us, were made for the Lord, and the Lord actually cares about our body. Do you know the Lord cares about your body? And Paul will talk about food later in this chapter. And it's true that one, what one eats does not affect your spiritual life. That's true. 
In fact, he says that this is such a, uh, so important to the recognizing the physical realm that one day God is actually going to do away from it. He says that God will destroy both one and the other, food and stomach. That's not something that we're going to have to issue, uh, deal with. But he says that just so, it doesn't mean that we can, we can compare eating and you know, our, our, our appetite for food and, and sexual appetite. We can't look at them the same way. Because just as the, the spirit affects the body, the, the physical body can affect the spirit as well. And people cannot commit sins within their bodies without damaging their soul because their bodies and their souls are inseparably joined. And the reality is, is that why, foods were, why stomachs were made for food, people's bodies were not made for sexual immorality. They were not made to do it how what seems to be the, the, the going consensus right now is just do whatever you want. And if somebody says anything, they're just speaking hate and they're speaking judgment. When the reality is, is that there was a reason for this stuff, and we'll get into that more in a little bit more in a few minutes here. But the truth is, is that stomachs and food will pass away, but your body is intended to be transformed and glorified. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, your body will be raised again. It says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise up, raise us up by His power. That's what He's talking about here. God's concern for the physical bodies of His children began at creation. From the beginning, He cared about our bodies. And Jesus was put to death, but God raised Him, and likewise, He's going to raise up our bodies from the dead as well. And I don't know how that works out. I don't know if you die with a young body, you wake up with a young body in, in, the, in the Lord. And if you die with an old body, you wake up. But I do know that, that there's no pain and there's no... So no matter what it looks like, you're not going to have to deal with the stuff that you're dealing with now. But it is your body. You will have it. When you go to heaven, we're raised up in our bodies. And if that's the case, we probably ought to think about the, the stuff that we do that affects our body, particularly sexual morality, because it's something that is so damaging that Paul spends half a chapter dealing with it and goes into great deal of the, wow, this is a bad thing. He goes on to say in the next verse, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that the one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. This is the kind of stuff that hits home. The believer's body is a member of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Believers are, are one with Christ. We abide in Him, and He abides in us. The believer and Christ are inseparable. And whenever we do, particularly sexually, sexual sin, he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Shall I join them with that? When you think about that, you're like, wow. This may have had a greater impact than I may have thought. The world tells me it's okay, do whatever you want, but the reality is there's more impact to it than that. How can we be joined to Christ and be joined to sin at the same time? What was going on here is some of them in the Corinthian church saw no harm in visiting the temple prostitutes. 
the uh, commentary I read says there were over a thousand of them in the temple of Aphrodite. And they figured that it was, it was okay. I was actually reading that uh, in some cultures, prostitutes, while the prostitutes themselves was considered a, a deplorable um, profession, apparently if you're a, a man going to see a prostitute or a woman going to see one, in those days it went both ways, um, it, was, it was okay for that. The person working as a prostitute, that was awful, but, but uh, the people that were going, apparently that was okay. Matter of fact, in some cultures, they figured that that would detour adultery, which I don't know quite how that works. I figure if you see a prostitute, you're not going to go after a, a, a lady with a regular job. I don't, I don't know what the deal was there. But the people in the Corinthian church, they were like, they didn't see any problem with that. They figured they could, you know, foods for stomach, stomachs for food. But the reality is, is that we were bought with a price, and our bodies belong to him. As we get a little bit further, you're going to read that in verse 20. He says that we were bought with a price. Jesus gave up his life so that our lives could be remade and brand new. And they were squandering that away. And we are one spirit with the Lord, and we must yield our bodies to him as living sacrifices. That's what the scripture says in Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're to provide our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. We were just talking at Bible study on Friday night that, that somewhere along the line, um, we've, we've failed many Christians because we tell them that you get saved and, and, and God takes care of you and you're forgiven and free, but we forget to tell them a part about, well, not only are you, is he your Savior, but he's also your Lord. That you were purchased for a price. That we are his just as he is ours. And that puts inside of us a responsibility to live for him. I think if we would just begin each day reminding ourselves of this, it would make a great deal of difference in how we lived our lives. If we thought about that I am his, I was purchased for a price, and anything that I do, I am conjoining Christ too. If we thought about this, more regularly, it might make a difference in how we lived. And in this particular case, he goes on in verse 16, and we begin to realize that sex is much more than just a physical act. Instead, it unites a man and woman in such a way that they become one body. And this is how it was planned from the beginning. This is in, in the book of Genesis 2.24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And when a man and a woman joins their bodies, it's not just a physical act, but everything is involved. Their spirit and their, their, their personality, everything is involved in that act. There is much, it's not just a physical thing, it's emotionally, and everything is part of that. And there's a, more, a much deeper of, of oneness that brings with it deep and lasting consequences. And Paul warned that sexual sin is the most serious sin a person can commit against his body, for it involves the whole person. 
We're going to see that in a couple verses. He mentions that in a few moments, that this sin involves the whole person. It's not just a physical act separated from you that you can do autonomously with no cause or impact. There's real pain that can happen. There's, there's something more to it. There's a spiritual element to it. That's why in the Scripture it says, wait till you're married, because when you're joined, it, it's more than just saying I do in a court. It's a spiritual thing when a man and woman come together. Because it's so much more than a physical action, and it causes so much more long-term uh, interaction. I don't even know what the word for it, but it's, it's, it's something that's with you forever. And it can't be changed, and it makes an impact, and it causes damage to you. I remember... Um, I was just reading on Facebook the other day, one of the gals from another church was, was reading an article about, or put an article up about this, this gal who lived with her boyfriend. And she made all the cases for why it was good that she lived with her boyfriend. And, and uh, it wasn't a Christian gal, it was just some, some article that was read. And, and it, it made the, uh, the you know, earthly points of why this is important. You, know, you live with somebody so you can make sure that you get along with them and they, you find out all their bad habits beforehand so, so you can, you know, if it's too rough, you can always bail out. You know, the whole thing, you know, why, why this stuff was important. And, and anyway, this is a Christian girl and, and she's asking some questions. She's like, I just want to have a discussion. This is the points they made and, you know, logically there's some points that make sense. And she, and she wanted a discussion. And I'm reading through the, the comments, and, you know, some people are, are just, you know, Christians are spitting vitriol, you know, it's kind of rough, and some are making good points. And, and there was, and, and I, I didn't respond to her because I didn't really want to put this on Facebook, but I remember in my own life, um, when, when my wife and I met, we weren't really walking with the Lord, and we lived together before we were married. And everything that goes along with that. That's another thing, is people think they can live together and not live in sin. Well, newsflash, it doesn't work that way. Hormones in your body make you stupid. That's all there is to it. They literally turn off parts in your head that allows you to make good decisions. And you will not make good decisions. It's impossible. So we were living together, and and all of that that goes along with that but before we got married, you know, I told you the story about how me and Pastor Mike met, and he said, you know, you're going to make an honest woman over and get married. And we had counseling, and he said that, you know, if we're going to do this, you need to start living like Christians now. You mean he judged you? No, he held me accountable because I said I was a Christian. I was going to his church. He said, you need to live like Christians. So obviously, economically, because we already lived together, it, it was financially impossible for the move out, but we were told we need to stay in separate bedrooms and, and live the way that we were supposed to live. And we did. And fortunately, we got married rather quickly. Because, <laughs> like I said, hormones make you stupid. And, but I remember distinctly on my wedding night, when at that point, we were doing it in a godly way, I felt guilty afterwards. Because the damage that comes, it travels with you. What should have been a wonderful moment turned out to be not really. Because that stuff that happens, that comes with you, it's much more damaging than you can ever imagine in your life. And that's why it's so important to live sexually pure. Because it is so much more than a physical action.
1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. A person who commits sexual sin with a prostitute is united or joined with him or her. But by contrast, the person who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The same verb is used both times in the Greek, and it's describing the oneness the believers have with the Lord, who is spirit. The same verb, that means that when you're with somebody sexually, there's a oneness that happens. You become one flesh. It's much more than a physical action. It's a spiritual transaction that takes place. And the Christians who were uniting themselves with prostitutes would defile the sanctity of their relationship with God. And this is what was happening with those religious prostitutes that were so common in the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sin is a violation of one's own body. We don't even realize that. None of us would ever intentionally hurt ourselves. But if you think about it, if you look at so many of the women who are involved in and this kind of, uh, and men as well, but uh, uh, particularly it's women who have been hurt and they've been taken advantage of. And what happens is, is, is they've been abused or they've been, uh, something like that has happened and they get involved in the pornography business or any of those things because it is so damaging to them that it changes how they live their lives. This stuff is so damaging to you, it can affect the outcome of the rest of your life. It's something to think about. He says it's a sin that affects the body like no other sin does. And this sin has disastrous effects on our lives. But the problem is is that it can be such an enticement for people. And believers are no different. The scripture doesn't say when you become a Christian you won't be tempted anymore. Even Jesus was tempted. And it's clear that other sins do affect our body, like gluttony or drunkenness, but no other sin has the same effect on our memory, on our personality, our soul, or or any of those things as sexual sin does. And if you've ever met somebody who's been abused sexually and spoken to them, you can see what kind of damage that can do. And it's no different when you do it willingly. It's just masked a little better. But it does cause damage. He says that every other sin is committed outside the body, but the sexual and moral person sins against his own body. And he starts off with flee from sexual immorality. This is an interesting one if you, if you think about this. No other sin in this Bible does it say to run from, to flee. The other ones, we stand on our strength in the Lord. We can resist. We can be strong. But Satan gladly will use sexual sin as a weapon because he knows it has the power to destroy and he will entice you with it. He will try to make you be, uh, be attracted to and to do those things because he knows that it can, he can hurt you with, the, with that. And as a result, Paul says to, to run from it. Don't stand. Don't try to resist. This is not 
an area where we need to practice resisting those things. Run. Get out of there. Something's tempting you. Go. Don't just try to be willful and stubborn and resistant. Because this is one that if, it, if you slip, it does so much damage. Paul says flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say flee from any other kind of sin, but he says flee from sexual morality. Think about that as you read the Scriptures. Why would that be so important? But it's because it is so damaging to, to ourselves. And we'll go ahead and end the chapter here in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The words body in this, this verse is not referring to the corporate body of Christ. It's referring to each and every one of our individual bodies. Jesus lives inside of us. We are the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where our, our bodies are His dwelling place. And Jesus died to pay the high price that purchased sinful people's freedom. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from your, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus paid the, he gave up his life for us. And it was his blood and sacrifice that made believers acceptable to God. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He's done those. We're, he, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We've been forgiven. We've been freed. And we were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's not just a good idea. That's a command. But it's also a choice. We have to make the decision to live our, way, our lives that way. I think we'll end with this scripture from Romans 12, 1 through 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. I know we've read that already today, but I think it's a great one to end on because God sacrificed everything in His Son for us. As a result, we should sacrifice everything that is us for Him. And let's discern what is good. Remember that we were bought with a price. We're not our own. And we don't have the freedom that we do. We can do everything that we want to do. Yes, we are free in Him, but the Scripture also says that we are slaves to righteousness. That means that when you're a slave to something, that your master dictates everything that you do. If you're a slave, you have to ask for everything. You can't do anything without their permission. And when you're a slave to righteousness, the same is true. That means that righteousness dictates everything that you do. That means that we, that is what dictates what's in our life. We need to live righteous lives. Because righteousness is now 
our master. So let's be a people who choose to honor God with our bodies, amen? And when we are tempted, particularly with sexual sin, flee, run. Don't try to stand it. Run. Call somebody. Ask for help. And remember that if you are somehow involved in this kind of sin, it doesn't mean that God hates you. It doesn't mean that you are beyond repair. It doesn't mean that there's no hope for you. God still loves you. And he has provided a way. And you are still loved and redeemed in him. But from this point forward, make a decision that I was bought with a price, so I'm going to live for the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand our feet. Hallelujah.